chapter 7 as we're picking up here right now. We started this several weeks ago. Uh, we're in chapter 7 now, which is sort of a, a, a transition to the book. Uh, we actually looked at a little bit of chapter 7 last week. Uh, again, um, it's one of the joys of having to set up and break down every week. There's always like a guarantee that something's not going to function right. So last week, exactly what happened. Nothing got reported. And uh, so rather than kind of preaching through last week's message again, which I'm not going to do, but I do want to cover the entire chapter because there's a lot of stuff that I want to try to pick up on that sort of goes with the broader theme of the rest of the chapter. Um, and what I want to try to do first is just try to get you guys caught up to speed a little bit as to where we're at in the book of Ezra. Uh, if you are new, this will hopefully get you brought up to speed. Uh, if you have been here going through, just a little bit of a review, and then uh, we'll kind of try to get you brought up to where we're at. What happened is the children of Israel, they were living in their land, and as a result of sin and rebellion against God, God had basically told them that if they didn't uh, stop turning away from Him, stop walking away from the Lord in, in relationship with Him, God would bring about a judgment. The judgment that God was going to bring about was He was going to raise up a foreign nation. The nation was going to be strong and very powerful. The nation was potentially going to pull them out of their land. They were going to lose all sorts of rights and all sorts of privileges, and they would have been taken off into a foreign land that wasn't their own. They would have had to basically become a part of a brand new civilization. And you can imagine that's a tough thing to do. It'd be like um, Canadians coming in, invading a country, taking over San Luis Obispo, and causing all of us to have to adopt to their culture, their type of lifestyle. For the next 70 years, we'd all be walking around Holland, and we'd all be talking with an A. And that'd be the way we'd know life. And what had happened was, in a sense, the children of Israel were taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. They were taken out of their uh, country, all the way across the desert, all the way east into the region of modern-day Iraq, and then eventually Iran. And what had happened was, this was done through a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar basically was displaced by another king stronger than him from the Medo-Persian Empire, which is modern-day Chapter 7 10. Um, the book's actually named after him. Why? Well, he's the guy that wrote it, but he 
the bathroom and stuff. Well, that's a And uh, so finally, he sort of comes onto the stage, chapter 7 on, and he ends up leading sort of the second wave of returnees from exile from Babylon into this region of Canaan. And the third turn or return of exile was going to be several years later under the leadership of a guy by the name of Nehemiah. Give you a bigger perspective. Three returns from exile. First, the Zerubbabel, chapters 1 through 6, was Ezra. The second return from exile, from chapters 7 to 10, the second portion of Ezra, led by Ezra. And then the third return from exile, which is the entire book of Nehemiah. That's what's happening. All right? uh, between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is a space of almost 60 years. Long time. So if you're reading, chapter 6 into chapter 7, which is what we've done. It's just important for you to note that there's a huge chronological gap. If you want, you can write your Bible, your permission. You can write Esther. What happens is right between that two little chapter gap is Esther. The book of Esther takes place. It doesn't happen in the area of Judea. It happens in the region of Persia. Um, God miraculously raises up a Jewish gal, she ends up becoming queen. Beautiful story, we're not going to go into right now. So that's sort of a synopsis as to what's happening. Now, under this second return from exile, under the leadership of Ezra, here's what's going to take place. The whole chapter really is sort of an introduction of Ezra, who Ezra is. Up to this point, Ezra's not even mentioned in the entire book, which is kind of a curious thing. But finally, from chapter 7 on, Ezra's mentioned. And he's actually mentioned sort of as a third person. So again, Ezra's writing the book, but he speaks to himself in third person. But what you're going to notice about Ezra, really in chapter 7, there's really only three paragraphs that Ezra writes himself about himself. The rest of the chapter consists of a letter. A letter that's written by the king. A guy by the name of King Artaxerxes. This is a, a not the exact same Artaxerxes that's in the book of Esther. This is a guy by the name of Artaxerxes Andromanus. So he writes after the period of time of Esther, and he's writing this letter. So everywhere else in which the letter is not in the chapter, in other words, not written by Artaxerxes, every other paragraph that's in the chapter, chapter 7, that's written by Esther, there's this phrase that appears. I think it's really significant. I'll show you what, it means, what I mean by this. Take a look at chapter 7, about uh, verse uh, 6. Last part of verse 6, it says this. For the hand of the Lord was upon me. So what Ezra's doing, he's basically setting the stage. He's saying, I'm getting ready to go back, or I'm getting ready to go into the country of Judea. I'm going to lead the second wave of exile from Babylon into Judea. And he's going to tell you why. Why Ezra? And why not somebody else? And what, why did God choose Ezra to be this God? What, what, was, what was happening here? Well, he's given us these hints. He's going to tell us, you know, God's hand was upon him. Verse 6. Uh, jump down to about verse uh, 9. The last part of verse 9. He's going to say, again, essentially the same thing. For the good hand of God was on me. God's hand was upon me. So therefore, I'm leading the second wave of exile from Babylon back into Judea. Take a look at the very, very last verse of the entire chapter. It says this. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. So you kind of get the idea of what I'm trying to say. I'm looking for themes here. 
Uh, the theme that you're basically picking up on is this, is that God is choosing a man, a servant, a faithful man, to lead the people of Israel out of the second wave of exile into the land of Judea. And he's doing so through a guy like Ezra. So what's going to happen from this particular point is, is this is, again, just sort of the stage of the chronology of, what's, of events that's been happening. All of this is sort of taking place out of a revival. God shows up, you know, some 60 years earlier. He falls upon this guy named Zerubbabel, this guy named Joshua. He's a high priest. And all of these other uh, wave of immigrants that leave Babylon come back into the land. They build the temple. The temple's built. They're offering sacrifices to God. And then there was this, this huge nationalistic slash religious movement of God. That's what's happening. And it's, we've been looking at this over the past several weeks. That what's, what's a curious thing is that this revival doesn't just last for you know a number of weeks or a number of uh, years and then fizzles out. We're talking for 60 years that this thing's insane. So much so that there's a second wave or a second generation, a third generation, in this case Ezra, who's moved by God to leave everything that he has in Babylon to make his way back into the land or make his way into Jerusalem to be a part of this movement of God. What we're trying to say is that there's this sort of sustaining movement of God. The work of God is going on. It's continuing. It's happening. It's, it's just this unstoppable force that is at work by the power of God. Uh, one of the prophets, uh, Zechariah, says this. This movement of God, he summarizes it like this. This movement of God, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. One of the famous verses, it, it, his point is that God is doing something. It's just the way we can chalk it up. Chalk it up to him. God is doing something. That's what's happening. So Ezra is the man that God's going to use to bring back. But what happens is even though Ezra's this guy, and he's a great guy, obviously, because three times he speaks about himself. I think it's kind of a serious thing. I mean, imagine you're the one writing this book, and you're like, God with me. God's hand is on me. I'm a great guy. I'm an amazing scholar. I know the Bible really well. That's kind of what's happening, which is kind of a funny thing. But um, So Ezra's sort of setting the stage. But through Ezra, the whole nation's going to be blessed. And that's the point that I want you to catch. It's, it's this bigger question. I'll put it into a question format. I'll put it up on, on the screen here. The question is this. How is it that God blesses rebellious people. How does God bless them? And an undeserving people. Because that's what's happening here. Ezra is about God's blessing upon a bunch of undeserving people. So the question is, how does this blessing get facilitated? How does it work? How does it unfold? How does it happen? I think the answer is pretty clear in chapter 7. It's through faithful servants. And this really runs um, in harmony with, with the rest of the Bible. Whenever God is going to bless a nation, or a church, or a region, or a city, or a state, or whatever, God always does this really by raising up a servant. Starting with Abraham, as an example. God says to Abraham, I want to bless a planet. So here's the way I'm going to do this. I'm going to call you. You're going to be faithful. 
the earth will be blessed. So how are all the nations going to be blessed? Well, through Abraham. Uh, the people of Israel, in the trans, fast forward several hundred years, the people of Israel are in captivity in Egypt under the oppression, under the, uh, the whip and the scourge of the Egyptian people, and they cry out to God. Are they a worthy, deserving, God-centered nation? Not really. They're not loving God. They're not really concerned about God. They just want to have the pain stop. That's really it. They don't really care so much about obeying God, loving God, serving God. They just want to stop having whips on their back. That's about it. So how does God, who's a blessing God, how does he bless them? Answer, he raises up a Moses. Moses becomes this facilitator of blessing. Joshua, how does God get the people of Israel out of wilderness into the land of Canaan to bless them? Answer, Joshua. You guys get the picture I'm trying to make? The means in which God, throughout the biblical theme, the way that God brings blessing and life and, and victory into a bunch of undeserving, rebellious type of people is through a faithful servant. That's what we're going to see here in chapter 7. So with that, what I want to do is I want to jump in. I want to uh, kind of further ask a couple other questions because as we begin to look at this, you're going to basically begin to see some some criteria, some evidences or examples of what these type of people really look like. In other words, what does a faithful servant look like? How do they act? What defines a faithful servant? All right. Again, if God's blessing is facilitated through a faithful servant, the question we want to ask is, what is a faithful servant? How does he act? What does he look like? What does he do? Those are the questions we want to ask. So there's basically four things I'm going to look at as we kind of make our way through this chapter that I think are significant and that sort of point to uh, the means by which God blesses these sort of one of a faithful servant to bring about greater blessing to the world. Okay? So here's the first one as I look at this in the chapter. Beginning at verse 1, the first thing I notice is this. God tends to bring his blessing to these one of a faithful servant almost exclusively in the Bible through family lineage. Okay, so family lineage. Now, let me give you an example of what I mean. We looked at this a little bit last week, and uh, last week I, I, I looked at it from a different angle and talked about how uh, this concept of family lineage was important and significant because uh, God used this family lineage, which uh, Ezra came from, as a means to just bring about this next generation sort of sustain revival of blessing to the next generation. We talked about, really in short, I just yelled at you men for a while, about making sure that you carry on a godly lineage, godly heritage, all right? Don't just be typical dad in America that's just concerned with your job, and you don't care about hanging out with your kids, loving them, sharing the gospel with them, imparting Christ into their lives, and being a good husband that just knows how to love as well with humility and with respect. That's what I yelled at you about for a while last week. I'm not going to do that this week, all right? What I want to do this week is I want to try to understand this concept of God's blessing through a, the faithful servant in terms of how it's connected to family lineage. Because for some reason, Ezra wants us to know this. He adds this to the text by basically saying, here's a little bit about who I am. And by the way, I go all the way back to Aaron. That's basically what he's saying. Aaron the high priest. Here's what he says, verse 1. Now after this, the reign of Artaxerxes, king.
Persia, Ezra the son of Sheriah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Zerahiah, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, or Bukki, who's from the south, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. So here's what Ezra's saying. My lineage is all the way back to Aaron. Who's Aaron? Brother of Moses. Pretty impressive. Let me try to point out is that probably one of the reasons why maybe God's hand of blessing is on me is because I'm part of the family lineage. I'm, I'm part of this Aaronic priesthood. Aaron's my great, great, great granddad. Alright? Who happens to be the brother of Moses, who is also in this lineage of being Moses' father, Abraham. So lineage is important in this particular sense. Verse 6, he says, Bezezer went up from Babylonia. He's the scribe who spoke in the law of Moses. When the Lord, the God of Israel, had given him the king granted all that he had asked. For the hand of the Lord of God was upon him. Verse 7. And there went up also in Jerusalem in the seventh year, Lord of Xerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests, the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month. That was in the seventh year of the king. And the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of God was upon him. Here's what Ezra's saying. I came from a good lineage. I came from a good family history. And the people that joined me also came from this good lineage. Right? They're priests. They're gatekeepers. They're servants of the living God. And, uh, and he's going to basically tell you how long the trip took. Check that text. How long did it take from Babylon to Jerusalem? How long was that trip? You guys catch that? Four months, right? Y'all knew that, right? Yeah, that's right. Y'all knew that. Yeah, good. All right. All right. So we're all well medicated. So what's happening is four months is how long this takes. This whole trip is four months from Babylon into Jerusalem, and they are on their way to go into Jerusalem to begin this work of really pouring out God's faithful blessing through Ezra, this faithful servant. Okay? But the first thing is how do you do with this concept of family lineage? This is essential. In fact, this really plays into a lot of Jew, uh, Jewish-type concepts and thoughts, some with conception, but also some legitimate truth. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Um, when Paul the Apostle was alive, Paul was one of the greatest leaders in the early church. Paul is writing a book called Philippians. He was writing to this group of people that were basically boasting of their heritage, boasting of their talents, boasting of things that they had done, boasting of some of their accomplishments. And Paul's rebuttal to them was, you guys have nothing to boast in, right? If, if anybody has anybody to boast in anything, that's what I do. I was a Pharisee. And, and a Pharisee was... Sometimes we think of Pharisees as the bad guys, right? They're the ones with the black hat. Jesus had white hat. They're the bad guys, right? They come on the scene. Everything just shifts into minor tones. Music in the background, right? Not so. In fact, there were a lot of Pharisees that were very good, godly people. Nicodemus happened to be one of them, right? He followed Christ in the dark. He was embarrassed in some ways because of the system that he was connected with. Joseph of Arimathea was believed to be part of the social Sanhedrin, or a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. Um, Paul says, I was of the order of Pharisees. This is 
first ten, they would have for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statutes and the rules throughout Israel. Now here's what we notice about Ezra is that he's this guy that doesn't just simply set his heart to study the Bible, but he's this guy that actually not only sets out to study it, but to obey it, and then to communicate it to other generations so that they can study it and obey it and then communicate it to future generations, and he keeps building upon that. That was Ezra's heart. So Ezra wasn't just simply this guy that, you know, memorized Bible verses and increased his arrogance and pride. Ezra was this guy that said, Lord, I want to know your word so that I can live it. And in living it, I want to be able to convey it and communicate it to other people so that they can know you, so that they can live Starting. 
innovative in today's culture. I think it's fine for us to be innovative in lots of ways in terms of being able to communicate the gospel, in terms of being able to somehow uh, bring it forth into the world. But when our innovation begins to tamper with the beauty, the simplicity of the gospel, meaning, you know, there's a lot of churches today that kind of look at the gospel like, you know, this is complicated, it's weird, people freak out by it, nobody wants to talk about blood. I mean, we got PETA today. Nobody wants to talk about blood. It's bad. It's bad for, you know, people. It makes us feel awkward and weird. Blood freaks people out. So let's stick away from blood. And let's try to make Christianity about making people feel good. So what's happened is it's become sort of this consumer-oriented thing. And everything is about, in a lot of ways, in a lot of circles, about how we can make you feel good about yourself. the one who honors the word of God, who honors the 
third thing that I notice is this, is that there is a covenant of faithfulness. What I mean by that is concerned about making sure that covenant with God is secure, protected. You're walking uprightly. That's what he's concerned with. I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. Um, we're going to be taking a look at this letter that uh, Artaxerxes writes. But what I want you to notice in this letter is Artaxerxes writes this letter really for one purpose. The whole point of this letter is to go to Ezra, because Ezra's going to leave Babylon. He's going to go into Jerusalem. It's going to take four months to get there. But on his way there, when he finally comes to the city of Jerusalem, I'm assuming Ezra's never been there. There's going to be people that are going to ask him, what are you doing here? What's your purpose here? What's your plan here? And he's whipping out like hammers and getting ready to work. And says at the end of the chapter, he's going to beautify the temple. I have no idea what that means. But I'm sure, I don't know what he's going to be planting a garden. I don't know what that means. But he's going to start to work. And there's going to be people that are going to ask him, what are you doing here? And Ezra's going to take up the scroll. That's called Artaxerxes. And he's going to read it. He's going to say, listen, everything I'm doing, I'm doing because I've got letters. I've got an authority from the king himself to beautify the house of God. And what you're going to find in the letter is Artaxerxes' whole intention behind this letter is to basically say, we will give you everything you need to plant this church within the city, give you everything you need to make sure that you have the authority, to make sure that you have the funding, to make sure that you have the ability to build a strong church of people who are faithful to their God. It's really what the whole letter is about, in summary. I mean, Artaxerxes, and this is phenomenal. You're like, wait a minute, a pagan king wishing for the church to be very healthy? Yeah, that's exactly it. You're like, that's amazing. But that's exactly what Ezra says. I mean, it's like chapter, verse 26, Ezra's is like, I'm blown away. All right? That's my translation. He's like, I'm absolutely blown away. God is with us. Because he uses a pagan king to make sure that we are being faithful to the covenant of God. That's what the whole chapter, the whole letter of Artaxerxes is about. Um, he wants them to be strong. Now, I think from a pagan king's sort of a perspective, I think the reason for this actually serves in his favor too. Because if he's got a nation that's rebellious, that hates him, that is ready to fight against Artaxerxes, he's got a problem on his hands. But if he's got a king that feels empowered, that feels strengthened, that feels encouraged to obey their God, and they feel nationalistically strong, and they feel like they're not being threatened by Artaxerxes, then they'll work in his favor. Does that make sense? So that's why I think it also serves Artaxerxes' purposes to make sure that Israel is keeping covenantally faithful to God. So here's the letter. Here's what he says. First thing he says is this. Verse 11. He says, This copy of the letter the king Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest and scribe, a man learned in the manners of the commandments of the Lord, his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, there's the letter. King of kings. Speaks highly of himself. He says to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace. And now I make my decree that any one of the people of Israel or the priests or the Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem that he might go with you. For you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to make, to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. What are you going to find in this letter, aside from the fact that, that it's very encouraging to 
Ezra and his people to make sure that they stayed strong with God. You're also going to find basically some instructions and as well as some uh, items to help them succeed. Um, as I was looking at this, it's kind of this beautiful picture. Really what's happening is this pagan king is giving Ezra, this godly man, everything that he needs to build a strong church in the city so that the city can prosper and so that really the word of God is going to go out and spread. It's amazing to me because as he writes this letter, this letter, there's all sorts of really important things that give insights into what it takes to find a church. The first of which is the first that we just read. Basically, there's this commissioning that needs to happen. So the king, Artaxerxes, commissions Ezra. He says, hey, I'm sending you. That's what commission is. Anytime there's a new work that's being done, Anytime the church moves forward, anytime there's a new church movement or church planting, I think it's important for the church to be a part of this. The very word apostle itself is the literal Greek word that means sent out. Sent out from who? It's a word that has to do with commission. Jesus sends out the disciples and the apostles to begin a work, to plant a church. The very word apostle literally means sent out one, or commissioned one, okay? When, when we have missionaries in our church, people feel a, a desire to go forth in the world. Like what we did with Andrea. We sent her out. We brought her up here on a Sunday morning. Her husband prayed for them, and we sent them out in love. We're like, listen, God's hand is on you guys. We love you. We are here for you. We support you. We pray for you. Now, we send you out. That's what's happening here. Artaxerxes is like, we're sending you out to be a part of this commissioning work of God to build this church in the city. Verse 15. And also carrying the silver and the gold, the king and the counselors has freely offered to the God of Israel, who is dwelling in Jerusalem. And all the silver, the gold that you shall find, the whole province of Babylonia, and the free will offerings of, of the people and the priests that they vowed, he says, for the house of the Lord their God that's in Jerusalem. The second thing I want you to notice is this part of the endeavor to plant this church in Jerusalem is the need for uh, funding. The need for funding. So here's what Artaxerxes does. He says, listen, I'll, I'll pick up the tab. I'll, I'll pay for it as much as you, know, you need. So you're going to get silver and gold from me. But he also goes on to the second source of funding. If you notice, it says, and, uh, and also in verse 16, some silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia no idea what that means. I mean, you find gold in someone's front yard that's yours. I don't know what it means, but I get the idea. You know, anywhere you're around, if you're walking around, you're like searching a cave and you come across leather loads, you can have it. It's yours. If you come across a used silver mine, ah, take it. It's yours. If you find gold throughout all Babylonia, silver, yours, take it. Use it for the work of building a church in a city that will prosper. And then he says the third form of funding he says, and also the free will offerings of the people and the priests that they willingly gave to the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. So the third form of funding comes, comes from the people that are in Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, that are in Babylon, Babylonia. And these are, these are Jews living there. Uh, they're not excited necessarily about coming back or they're unable to come back for whatever reason, as we mentioned. They realize even though we can't go back to Jerusalem or be a part of this movement of God there, we're going to fund it. We're going to give freely, happily, joyfully to the work of God that's happening here. But the point that I want to make is this, that any type of 
upward movement of God requires funding. I'm certain that you guys woke up and thought, you know what I really want today is I want my pastor to talk about money. Well, I'm here to bless you. All right? So the point that I'm trying to make is this. Any work of God requires money. It just does. It just simply does. It has to. And even in the early church, they needed money. There were Christians in Jerusalem that were suffering all out throughout Corinth. And he's taking love offerings for people that are suffering back in Jerusalem. He's like, listen, the work of God's happening. We need you guys to help us. Bottom line is this. Whenever there's a work of God, there needs to be an attitude that says, how can I help? Where can I serve? How can I give? How can I give joyfully and happily to the work of God? Some people might be like, ah, oh, talk about the tithe. No, I'm not. Because here's the problem. When we start talking, especially in westernized churches, we're like, tithe. Here's what we're talking about. We're like, give me the bottom line, what I owe, I'll write the check, and be done. That's not what I'm talking about. Honestly, I think to some degree in the westernized church, the concept of tithing has destroyed our understanding about biblical economics. We think about just giving God 10% and that's going to be like he's some grumpy old man that unless he gets his money, he's just going to be angry with you. That's not how it works. That moves us into the, the third thing that I noticed that Ezra is basically encouraged by King Artaxerxes to do. It says this in verse 17. With this money, you shall with all diligence buy wolves, rams, lambs, grain offerings, to offer drink offerings, and that you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that's in Jerusalem. Verse 18, whatever seems good to you and your brothers, do with the rest of the silver and the gold that you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given to you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. I, Artaxerxes, the king, I make a decree. To all of the treasury and all of the province beyond the river. I imagine these are like, I have no idea, but my, my, my mind thinks like this. It's like these little way stations. Or maybe there's like bankers in there. I don't know. They're like, dude, if you're out of cash, go to the way station, show them this letter, and they'll give you whatever you need up to, and he's going to say, I'll give you whatever you need up to this amount. Verse 22 says, up to 100 talents of silver. 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing. Ah, have as much table salt as you want. Whatever is declared by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king of his sons, and also notify you that it shall be lawful to impose tribute, custom, and toll to anyone of priests, and Levites, singers, and doorkeepers, temple servants, and other servants of the house of God. So it's saying, we don't impose custom or tax on the priests. We don't, uh, you know, give out loans with huge amounts of need to pay back. Give it to them, right? No credit, nothing. Just give it to them. And that's what he's basically saying. But the third thing I want you to notice, I think Artaxerxes gets that he's commissioned to Ezra to plant this church, is... Even though there's a need for funding, there's also a need for stewardship. So here's what he's saying. He's not saying, I'm giving you a blank check. Go buy a big mansion up on top of the hill next to Jerusalem. All right? That's not what he's saying. Go buy a lot of Arabian horses and enjoy it. All right? 
it's exactly the same idea, so that the church can be healthy. It's amazing to me that Artaxerxes somehow knew, in order for you guys to be a faithfully covenant type of a community, Ezra, you're the man, you got to make sure you appoint good leaders. Good, qualified leaders who love God, know the book, who can pass these things on to other people so that next generation can be drawn to God. Does make sense?
love the Bible enough. We don't live it out properly. We have our own little perversions of it. We have our own ways in which we view it and we think about it. And it's completely inconsistent with the Word of God itself. Contradictory. The point is, is we just don't simply live it out properly. Strike two. I mean, if we look at it even further, like how good are we doing on the covenant? How good are you doing being faithful to God? Most of us just like a fit. Right, we all fit. The Bible talks about this, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Alright, so the whole point that I'm trying to make is this. How can we obtain God's blessings? How can we be a people, a nation, a body, a group, a people that have received or obtained the blessings of God? The answer is through a faithful servant. This is exactly what the Bible is about. This is the gospel. God stepped into our world. His son. He's born a Jew. The family lineage. He's born a child of Abraham. He lived faithfully. He always obeys and observes and teaches everything in consistency with the word of God. I mean, so we come to the point where Jesus would say something like this. Religion says, i got to perform and God will like me. Gospel says, Jesus performs and loves him. Gospel says, you know, just trust Christ. Religion says, do the best you can, maybe God will like you. This is why, guys, we love Jesus. I want to finish with this whole little passage. Turn, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. And all of this hopefully will come clarity for you, because at the very last portion of this section, I want us to see how important it is to understand Jesus in the middle of all this. Paul says this, this is in verse 3 of chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying, God is blessed. Now, I don't know what your perception of God is, your perception of God is he's this angry very spiteful old man with a very long beard that strokes all the time, and he's just looking to judge you. Hate to tell you, I'd be an atheist too. Alright? I'd be an atheist too. That's not the picture of the Bible's definition of God. Is that God is this blessed God. He is a blessed, happy God. And here's what God wants to do, this blessed God. He wants to bless. Blessing in Christ in heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for the adoption. So here's the question. You're like, family lineage, I'm out. Not God. There's another way to get in the family.